The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. My name is Nathan Roach. Today's reading comes from Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Go join Mr. Petty now. Love you, buddy. I love you. <laughs> like we can just go home now. <laughs> Isn't it something that Nathan just did the most powerful thing uh, in the whole service? He was the conduit of the direct word of God to us that I get to unpack and explain here in a moment. Um, but that was the highlight, that was the peak uh, of our service, as it is every week, to hear directly from the word of the Lord. Uh, before I get into the sermon, I want to make a quick announcement for those of you who are new, uh, who are curious about Christ Presbyterian Church, uh, and or who are considering membership at Christ Pres Church. Uh, we have uh, CPC 101 happening right now and also a one-day Saturday version coming up this next Saturday, August the 22nd. And uh, basically, this is the one-day version of our seminar on the mission, values, and core beliefs of our church and uh, what it would mean for you to be part of what we are trying to do together as a church in the city of Nashville and among one another. And so, uh, so if you want to participate in that, it's gonna be this upcoming Saturday from 9.30 in the morning until noon, uh, but there's a prerequisite to participate. Number one, you need to register on the website, christpres.org, uh, before Thursday, or Wednesday's the deadline, so before Thursday, and then you'll need to watch about two hours of videos before Saturday, and then Saturday, all the conversation and the Q&A and everything else will, will surround the videos that you watch ahead of time. And so all the information on that is at ChristPres.org backslash CPC 101. And hopefully there's information for you uh, in the bulletin. If not, it'll be on the homepage of the website. So, so now let's get into uh, our explanation today of Psalm 131. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said about this psalm, that it is one of the shortest psalms to read and one of the longest psalms to learn. One of the shortest to read and one of the longest to learn. And one of the reasons why it takes so long to learn it 
is because it offers us a gift that we don't typically regard as a gift, the gift of limitation. We feel limited spiritually. I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian, I had all of these grand dreams about becoming this amazing, remarkable uh, human being. Uh, and I feel now, some 30-ish years later, like there's been some progress in some areas of my life. There's been no progress in other areas of my life. And maybe I've even moved backwards in some other areas of my life. I'm limited as a spiritual man. We feel limited relationally, especially with the most meaningful most important relationships in our lives. Family relationships, close friendships, church relationships, work relationships. The more we get into life together with other people, the more we realize that relationships work a lot like a car. If you're not constantly attending to them, if you're not constantly uh, maintaining and repairing relationships will break down just like a vehicle will. We feel limited vocationally. I mean, who in the room hasn't dreamed for more uh, in the work that you do, whether it's the work of a student, whether it's, it's a hired worker out in, in the world of, of, uh, of paid vocation, whether it's stay-at-home work, things like parenting, taking care of, of a home, building a nest, whether your work is church work. Isn't it true that we, we always seem to be dreaming and fantasizing about and hoping for more than what we're able to accomplish in our work? We're, we're limited there as well. And yet, motivational speakers, for as long as we've been alive, have repeated the refrain to us, you can be whatever you want to be, you can do whatever you want to do as long as you work hard enough as long as you bring it, as long as you put yourself into the effort. You can be and do whatever you want. Now, for this middle-aged man who really wants a full head of hair, that's all I ask for, a full head of hair, the ability to sleep all the way through the night, I really want that. And I really want not to disappoint anyone in my family, on my staff, or in my church. Really want those things, but for some reason I've never been able to achieve any of them because I'm limited. You feeling me on this? If you are agreed, Psalm 131 is your release valve for the pressure and the shame that you feel over your limitation. Limitation is not just a human reality, but if it's received through the lens of the gospel, and as Micah loves to say when he gets up to preach, are you ready to hear the gospel? Are you? Why does he get more feedback than I do? <laughs> it's not fair if received through the lens of the gospel, limitation can be received as a gift and not as a liability. 
There are three instructions that, that I'd like to draw out this morning from the 131st Psalm, the Psalm that is the, one of the shortest ones to read and one of the longest ones to learn. And those things, three things are get low, become small, and lean into the bosom of Jesus Christ. So get low. Here, here, here it is in verse 1. These are the words of King, King David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. It's almost as if he's saying, as the king, I'm not really ambitious for all that much. What I really want is a calm, quieted, settled soul, and then the rest can take care of itself. You know, Jeremiah says this to his, his young scribe, Baruch, who apparently is a young, ambitious man. And here Jeremiah is getting access to kings and rulers and, and priests and other prophets. And, and Baruch, it, it appears, starts to dream a little bit about how maybe he can become a, a great man like Jeremiah someday. And Jeremiah perceives this and he looks at his young scribe and he says, do you desire great things for yourself? Desire them not. Or as my grandpa Fred on my mother's side used to say, don't get too big for your britches. Contrast this mindset of getting low with the best-selling book in Christian bookstores in the past couple of years, maybe with the exception of Jesus Calling, which just keeps going. Here's an excerpt from the best-selling book in Christian bookstores. The real you is destined for something more your version of more. This is who you were made to be, and the first step to making that vision a reality is to stop apologizing for having to dream, for having the dream in the first place. It's time to become who you were made to be. Believe that you are capable to become whatever kind of person you want to be. You've got to decide right now that you can be whatever you want to be and achieve whatever you want to achieve. This is what you call the gospel of self-actualization, which has nothing of the gospel in it. And Christians are eating it up because the low place just isn't enough. The one who is meek and lowly in heart just isn't enough. The one who made himself nothing just isn't enough. Here's the downside of the gospel of self-actualization. It either leads you into pride, if you think you're killing it, or into shame and possibly even despair if you fail at your own expectations or if you fail at the expectations of somebody else. Or if you make it to a perch and then you lose that perch, which everybody who gets to a perch loses a perch because the mortality rate is one person per every one person. 
100 years, everybody in this room is going to be forgotten in all likelihood except maybe one or two. Who knows? There's a contrast being made here between personal ambition, the gospel of self-actualization, and aspiration, kingdom aspiration. Psalm 131 confronts best-selling Christian books that tell us that we can and should become all that we want to be when that's never been our mission or purpose in life. Our purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, our, our, our purpose in life is not to become all that we want to be, but rather to become all that we were meant to be according to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. It's a big difference. One is called selfish ambition. The other is called gospel aspiration. One is about you. The other is about someone who's so much bigger than you who you get to be united with forever. The Bible defines gospel aspiration in this way. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Bible defines gospel aspiration in this way. The greatest of all gifts is love. Jesus himself describes gospel aspiration in this way. If you want to be great, then serve. But before you can serve, you've got to be served. Here's the, here's the great thing about greatness according to the great one. No matter who you are, no matter what your position, no matter what your stature, no matter how many likes or follows you do or don't have, no matter how much money you do or don't have, no matter how much status, esteem, education, pedigree you do or don't have, it's accessible to you. Because greatness is, is not about accumulation. Greatness is not about advancement. Greatness is about a posture. First of receptivity to the kindness of the Lord and then a living out of what you've received in the world. Jesus tells this parable. It's called the parable of the talents. You can Google it to find where it is in the Bible. The parable of the talents. And it says that, 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 that the manager in the parable entrusts a different uh, amount of his resources to different workers. And to one worker, one talent is entrusted. And to another worker, five talents is entrusted and both of them double for the manager what was entrusted to them. The one that was entrusted with one produced two. The one that was uh, entrusted with five produced ten and they got the same exact reward. Verbatim. Same reward. Because as the the song, the David Wilcox song goes, it's not just what you're born with, it's what you choose to bear. It's not how large your share is, but it's how much you can share. It's not the fights you dreamed of, but it's those you really fought. It's not what you've been given, but it's what you do with what you've got. Job is a rich man. The poor widow is a poor woman. 
they are both faithful with what's been entrusted to them. And it's quite possible that they will be sitting side by side in glory. It's also quite possible that Job will be the poor widow's servant in glory. Quite possible. What we're talking about in terms of true greatness is a posture of humility. John the Baptist had it when, when people were wanting to make him famous and, and the crowds were rushing to him and he's, he's starting to turn into a Christian celebrity. He says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not the one you should be looking at. The one that I'm announcing is the one that you should be looking at. I, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He must increase and I must become less. You know, Mike and Christina uh, Edmondson were over for dinner the other night and and we're, we're talking a little bit about preaching as preachers do. We can't help ourselves, uh, even at dinners on nights off. We, we get into talking about what we do. And, and Micah says what we always you know, know and think as preachers, but we really struggle with sometimes too. And that is this, the most successful preaching is the kind of preaching where you walk out and you don't think about the preacher. You think about Jesus. You don't walk out thinking, oh, what a great sermon. You, you walk out thinking, oh, what a great Savior. He must increase, says John the Baptist. I must become less. You know, Paul and Barnabas, the Greeks, wanted to treat them like gods. They started calling them Zeus and Hermes, and, 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 and Paul and Barnabas said to, to the Greeks, what on earth are you doing? We are just like you. We are beggars telling other people where the bread is. We're not the bread. Jesus is the bread. Virgin Mary, an angel, announces to her that she's going to be the mother of God. She's going to carry God in her womb. I mean, if there's ever an occasion for pride, maybe it was that. But what does she say? In wonder, not in boasting, but in wonder, all generations? Could it be all generations are going to be blessed through me? And then she says, the Lord has looked on the humble state of his servant. Yeah, Henry Nouwen called this downward mobility. Nouwen, yes, the Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard scholar who left it all to become pastor to a small community of mentally disabled men and women. He says this about the concept of downward mobility. This is the book you want to buy in the Christian bookstore. Scripture reveals now and says that real and total freedom is only found through downward mobility. The divine way is indeed the downward way. Jesus moved from power to powerlessness, from greatness to smallness, from success to failure, from strength to weakness, from glory to ignominy. The whole life of Jesus of Nazareth resisted upward mobility, resisted self-actualization, resisted the pursuit of likes and follows and fame and celebrity, resisted the love of money, resisted the love and lust for power, resisted upward mobility. The way down is the way to greatness get low. Second, become small. That's the second verse. David says, I'm calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Here is the king of Israel. 
saying that what I want to be more than anything else in the world is a child again. If the kingdom of God is so upside down to the world's values, like you can come into a church if it's functioning according to the kingdom of God. You can come into a local church and quickly discover, perhaps, that, that, that there are blue-collar people who have spiritual oversight of senators and governors. That's actually been the case in our own church. That's right. Where that is not only a possibility, but a, a reality, it's right. Because maturing, growing up in the kingdom is growing up into humility, growing up into the low place, getting big by becoming small in your own eyes. Because there's only room for one pedestal. There's only room for one king. There's only room for one hero. There's only one the room for one celebrity who's famous. And it's the one who ran from fame, Jesus himself. The less like a king you act, the more like a king you become. David recognizes that. You know, there's a place in Matthew 18 where the disciples are bickering with each other about who's the greatest. And then they go to Jesus. Ah, hey, let's just let Jesus be the arbiter of this. Let, let, let's just let him settle it. Lord, which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom? He says, none of you. Then he summons a little child. He says, this one's the greatest in the kingdom. He says to his disciples, unless you change and become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Become small. What does a little child offer? Remember, it's not just a child. It's a little child. It's like a baby or a toddler that Jesus is putting in front of them. Here's what every little child offers. Two things. Their existence and their list of demands. Demands for attention, for food, for sleep. Parenting, young children, is a grind. I'll never forget this. You know, our, our, our daughters are now adults and young adults. I'll never forget road trips. And it always confounded me how, especially when they were babies, an 11-pound human requires 75% of the luggage. And all of that luggage has to be packed, organized, sanitized, and, 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 and carried and hauled by the parents. And then the parents have to go haul the child, too. The child can't even get to the car themselves. Parents are doing everything. It's a grind. And those of you who are parents of smaller children, it's true, isn't it? You wouldn't have it any other way. Those of you who have been parents, like us, if you asked us, if we could go back and just bypass those years of physical exhaustion, no sleep, carrying everything, building the biceps involuntarily, if you could just bypass that and get your kids at, at fifth grade or whatever you know, that, that turning point was, I know that Patty and I would say, no way. Some of our most cherished memories were with the ones who only had existence and a list of demands to offer us. Existence and need. 
Which do you think warms the heart of the Father most? Let, let me just ask this. You're made in the image of God, so let's answer that question by talking about you. Which warms you most as a parent, Mallory, and kids team? Which, which, which warms you most? That your three-year-old gets it done with the chores? Or that your three-year-old feels so safe and protected and cared for that they fall asleep in your lap? Which one warms you the most? What a disservice we do to God to think of him in the reverse. Why would we think so highly of ourselves and so lowly of God to think that we would be more warmed by a resting child that's content to be cared for, but what God wants to do is make demands of his little ones, that that's really what he's after, as if he needs anything from us. Here's what David says. He's a grown-up man who wants to be a baby again. And so he says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child. Because he believes that what warms the heart of God most is a child at rest. A child who is content to be taken care of. You know, Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And, and this is really what David is unpacking here is the Sabbath concept. That, you know, there's, there's a Sabbath behavior, there's a Sabbath rhythm, six days of work, six days of productivity, one full day of rest and worship and community and means of grace to fuel you for the next six days of work and repeat. That's the Sabbath principle. But there's also a Sabbath posture beneath the rhythm. And the rhythm serves this posture, and the posture obeys this rhythm. Here's the thing about the fourth commandment. It's one of the ten. Still one of the ten. Always has been, always will be. It's based all the way back in creation, where God worked six days and then he rested. And told Adam to do the same. It's the longest of the Ten Commandments. It gets more press, it gets more words dedicated to it than any of the other ten. And in the Bible, when you see something get a, getting a lot of press, that's emphasis. It's like three exclamation points after the fourth commandment, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It's that important for you, for your flourishing, for your welfare, for your well-being. And here, catch this. This was a little foreshadowing of who Jesus would be and what he would come to do. God works six days in the beginning. God created six days creation, six days putting his hands in the dirt, six days making things out of nothing. And on the sixth day, he, he creates Adam somewhere in the middle of the day and Eve. Uh, while Adam's in a deep sleep, there's that sleep thing again. You fall asleep, you rest in my arms, I'll get it done. I'll give you your very best gift. God says very good. He says good about everything he creates, but he says very good after Eve comes. And what was Adam doing when very good came his way? He was fast asleep. Had the REM, you know, you know, a rapid eye movement going, just as God would have it. But God's, here's something that's easy to miss. In the creation narrative, God's very last day, the full, his last full day, the seventh day was the day that God rested. It also happens to be the very first full day of Adam's week. Very last day of God's week, very first day 
of Adam's week. I work, the Lord says, toward rest so that you might rest toward your labors. You know, the Great Commission, huge, huge task that, that, that God gives to Adam and Eve. First Great Commission, tend my garden, till the earth, take care of it. Second Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, go into all the world, you 12 fishermen who are bickering with each other all the time, you partisan political people, Simon and Matthew. Go into all the world and change it. Baptize people, teach them to obey everything I commanded you and, and I'm with you, I'm with you all to the very end of the age. Big task, right? 17 chapters before he says, go for me and do for me. 17 full chapters prior, he says, first, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You know, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's the starting point. The starting point for the Christian is not you need to be more and stop apologizing for it. That's not the message of the gospel. The gospel doesn't say more, more, more. That's Pharaoh. That's the anxiety system of Pharaoh. That's the anxiety system of Herod. That's the anxiety system of slave-based systems. More. No. Jesus says, the first thing I need from you, the first thing I want from you, is rest. Rest. Long before he says, go and do for me, he says, come to me. Fall asleep in my arms. It's my favorite thing. The greatest disservice we can do to God is to assume, act, live with the thought that our well done comes to us at the finish line instead of the starting line. Because Jesus said it's finished before we breathe our first breath. The work is done. Lastly, because of these things, lean into his bosom. That's verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord, in the Lord. This is one of the Apostle Paul's favorite phrases, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Union with the Lord, union with Christ. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Union with Christ means this, that Christ is in us and we are in Christ. And, 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 and as far, and this is incredibly mysterious, but, but, it, but as far as it depends on God, we are indistinguishable from Christ himself because we are defined as his very body and united with him as his very bride, as if we are one flesh with him. One of the most moving scenes to me in all the Bible is the 13th chapter of John, where John starts talking about this man that he called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who was he referring to? He was referring to himself. Maybe he'd spent a life steeped in the 131st Psalm. Maybe he read this shortest Psalm, and maybe it took him a long time to learn it. But he was there in that moment. And then when he starts talking about himself, he says he was reclining at the bosom of Jesus. This is like a king saying, I want to be a child again. You've got a grown man leaning into the 
the breast and, and the embrace of another grown man. And the reason why David had to calm and quiet his soul was that the world was raging against calm and quiet from every direction. You know, the world said, you must live and, and, and bring it and become more in my anxiety system if you're going to survive it. And so he says, in that context, i got to calm and quiet my soul. Hope in the Lord. Trust in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So um, when one of our daughters was, was young, she would get terrified at night. As soon as it went dark and we put them to bed, she would get terrified so much so that she would come into our room repeatedly, like all through the night. And Patty and I were like, okay, we got to do something about this. And so, so the one thing that worked was for me to get out of bed and then get into her bed with her, lay behind her, put my arms all the way around her, and just, just tell her, Daddy's here, and I'm not leaving until you're fast asleep. And I, I wouldn't leave until she was fast asleep. But eventually, that wasn't working for me any more than it was working for her because, because I was getting sleep deprived and, and eventually realized, and, and Patty and I realized as we talk with a kind of a family counselor that we really need to wean her off of, of this assumption that her dad is going to physically like get behind her every single night as, as like her sleeping pill. And so what we did, we, we, we did a kind of a graduated phase where, where, where we said, all right, she came into our room. We said, okay, let's go do the ABC game. Uh, do it with animals. Like in your brain, name, you know, 26 animals. Aardvark, um, I don't know, what, what, what a, a baboon. You know, you, you go through until you get to Z, and then you can come and ask for Dad to come in and, you know, help you get back to sleep. And, and then the next night it was, okay, let's do, uh, let's do foods. Do that in your mind. Apples bananas, cashews, and so on. And eventually, you know, she, she, was, she wouldn't fall asleep, and then she'd come back. Like, she'd try to stay awake through, through A to Z. And then she started falling asleep around W. And then she started following, falling asleep around L. And then started falling asleep around the letter D. She weaned off of my physical presence while still knowing that we were very much there for her very much accessible in the other room if she got threatened. This is what, 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 what David is talking about when he's talking about himself as a weaned child. And then if we fast forward to the New Testament, when Christ dies, he's risen, he returns. Before he ascends into heaven, disappears physically from the scene, he says something very curious to his disciples. He says, it is good for you that I should leave. And then he explains, he says, because I'm going to send my spirit. Now, why is the Holy Spirit better than the physical embodied presence of Jesus Christ? Well, for one, the physical embodied presence of Jesus Christ was limited in his, by his own self-limitation from being in more than one place at one time. And so let's say you, my disciples, scatter throughout the world for the Great Commission. I can only be with one of you unless I leave. And then I send my spirit. My spirit is everywhere all the time. My spirit is omnipresent, which means I can legitimately say to you that through my spirit, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And here we are. 
in the bosom of Jesus now as beloved disciples. And, and how are we in the bosom of Jesus if he's left? Well, here we are. We have each other. We are the body of Christ. We are one another's bosom. I was made to feel this in the last few weeks as we spent time with my mother to transition her uh, into glory. And ever since that time, uh, I've received texts, phone calls. I've got a stack of, of, of sympathy, encouragement cards with, with a lot of handwritten personal notes that are probably about that tall from you. And at some point along the way in this process, I, I said to my wife, maybe once or twice along the way, I don't know how anyone can go through this kind of thing without a local church. I know people do it, but I just don't know how. You know, Robert Frost, the poet, said that home is the place where they have to take you in when you get into a mess. But, but what we get to say is, this is, home is the place where we get to take you in. You know, a couple days ago, it was, we, we, we got news, our pastoral team got news that somebody in the church has just, just experienced a, a major tragedy. And what happens whenever there is a major tragedy? Todd Teller, let me at him. What can I do? It's my day off, but I don't care. Because we're the church after all. We're, we, we're, we're meant, we're called, equipped, empowered to show up and to put our arms around people in the dark so that they can have a chance at finding new rests for their souls. That's what the church is. And so isn't it wonderfully ironic that Jesus says it's good that he should leave, and then he leaves, and then he sends his spirit, and then his, his spirit embodies his people, is embodied by his people all over the world, and so here we are, the body of Christ, able to also touch each other and put arms around each other, and show up at each other's funerals. And this is my body, given for you, my blood, shed for you. He comes back physically. And there are believers all over the world doing this. It's the omnipresent table. Even what we lost, he gives back to us. So I want to let that be our transition into this glorious moment that we get to celebrate every week called the Lord's Supper.